0: launch, scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Well, welcome everybody to Season 2, Episode 37 of the Group Practice Accelerator Podcast. This is going to be a great interview, and I know you're going to enjoy this. I do encourage you to brew a cup of coffee and get your pad and pen ready, because the Chief Investment Officer of fintrust capital advisors mr alan gillespie is going to join me behind the microphone today it is another interview format i've known alan for a number of years he is an entrepreneur at heart he has built a successful financial services company and recently exited that to united community bank and he is about as well versed as they come in terms of macroeconomic trends, historical, present, and future of anybody that you'll ever meet. Alan is a dear friend of ours here at Polaris, and he is going to share a lot of experience and a lot of insight into where we find ourselves in the overall uh, macroeconomy in the United States. So I know you're going to get a lot out of this. This is going to be a lot of fun. I enjoyed uh, recording this interview and I hope you enjoy it every bit as much as I did. The Group Practice Accelerator podcast is on the air. Once again, thanks everybody for joining me on the podcast today. This is Perrin Desports and I am your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast, of course, from Polaris Healthcare Partners. And as I teased in the introduction, I'm joined behind the microphones today by Mr. Alan Gillespie, co-founder of Fintrust Capital Advisors. Alan, thanks so much for joining me on the show today.
1: Excited to be here, Perrin. Thanks. Um, Look forward to being participating on the Group Practice
0: Accelerator. You bet. You bet. So I've been looking forward to this for um, a couple of weeks since we started teeing it up together. And just for a little bit of background um, on uh, uh, Alan and Fintrust, For our audience, Uh, Alan is the co-founder of Fintrust Capital Advisors. Like I mentioned, it's a wholly owned investment advisory subsidiary of United Community Banks. They have a presence in North and South Carolina, Tennessee, Georgia, Alabama, and and Florida. Alan is a chartered financial analyst, CFA, and is the chief investment officer at UCB. In addition to that, Alan and his team at Fintrust work closely with us Uh, at Polaris uh, for a handful of client needs, but also some of our own personal needs in terms of managing our 401k and some things like that uh, through Polaris. So we know these guys extremely well. And to say that we trust them uh, is an understatement. Um, The other thing about Alan and his team, uh, candidly, is that they are a resource that we go to, that I look to for um, historical precedent, trends, prognostications, um, guidance, and advice. And I feel like he is, Alan is somebody that really connects the, the history um, in terms of economic um, happenings uh, in the United States uh, with where we find ourselves presently and gives nice color To where we might be going in the future. And given everything that's uh, transpiring in the United States and across the world these days, um, his is advice and counsel that I seek uh, with alarming regularity, I'll say. So, Alan, let's dive right into it. You know, as, as I mentioned just then, you're really great with historical context around current events. I mean, I feel like everything that that happens that I may reach out to you for a little bit of insight on, you always cite some historical ref- reference, which makes me feel better, like these are not necessarily uncharted waters, right? So you're great with historical context around current events. maybe unpack some of where we find ourselves uh, and do a little bit of a deeper dive for our audience uh, in terms of this like macroeconomic outlook, the things that are going on today.
1: Sure. Yeah. I always like to look to history because there's an old saying, anything that can happen has happened, just maybe not in our lifetimes. Uh, So that's one of the reasons why we sort of look back and you want to see what some similarities are, but then think through some of the difference. So when thinking about the macro uh, economy, it's important to separate short-term cyclical factors from longer-term secular trends. So short-term, the market obviously is dealing with uh, increasing interest rates and increasing energy prices. And energy prices and inflation are just an indirect form of taxation. And that is currently being used to support the green agenda and a lot of the UN 2030 uh, sort of planning. Uh, but historically, though, high energy prices, high taxes, and high interest rates are a very negative combination uh, for the economy because they take money directly out of consumer pockets. In fact, 11 out of the last 12 recessions were preceded by high energy prices and higher interest rates. I mean, if, if you think back to oh seven oh eight, oil prices went to 150. Uh, back this summer, they hit 123. So obviously that just cuts down consumer uh, spending and that's about 70% of the the economy. But to a degree, some of those effects are are short-term. Some of the longer-term effects though that I think are important for your listeners are are demographics, right? And and we tend to forget about demographics um, because they move really slowly. Uh, Another big trend that I think is gonna be with us for a long time is I call it uh, the deglobalization of supply chains. We sort of realized some of those stresses during COVID hit probably many of your users with uh, PPE uh, equipment, uh, obviously all coming out of Asia. People couldn't get it, Um, but demographic data moves slowly and rarely changes. Same thing with supply chains. Uh, Companies don't necessarily want to remake those if they don't have to, but obviously those are being remade right now um and right now the demographics are at a pretty unique inflection point and that's impacting employment trends and consumer preferences in a big way
0: yeah i think the the demographic challenges uh as as we talk about the you know the workforce in its entirety um those that have left and and haven't come back we're now hearing about some that left and are, are unretiring or whatever the word is Uh, and then we we see a lot of different changing demographics as it relates to dental schools themselves for the first time ever uh in 2021 the uh incoming school enrollment um was over 50 uh female that had never happened before so uh, a lot of a lot of changing um uh, wins as it relates to the the profession uh in and of itself and and you mentioned some of the supply chain issues as well which are clients the entire industry was um they felt directly you know and we're all seeing a uh an increase in terms of um our costs of doing business uh we're seeing an increase in terms of everything uh that we pursue as a consumer whether it's eating out in restaurants or um, you mentioned uh oil and the price per barrel and and although it's come back recently the cost of gasoline groceries airfare on and on and on right so you know as we kind of turn into this conversation around um uh, you know trends like inflation versus this stagflation word versus uh recession can you maybe uh, take apart some of that for our audience and let's talk about the difference in those concepts and and also what do they mean for a consumer uh whether it be consuming goods or, or healthcare services itself.
1: Yeah. So to, to kind of set the stage, uh, of what's driving some of the inflation and stagflation conversation, I do think demographics are, are a big part of that. Uh, demographically, the country looks like a big old U. You. uh, you've got a lot of boomers, uh, peak year of the baby boom, uh, was 1957 when there were about 4.3 million, uh, live births in the U S, uh, at this point, about 40% of boomers have already retired. And obviously, this year we have more reaching age 65 and for the next four years. Uh, so, a lot of people just reaching older retirement ages. You know, at the same time, your peak spending really comes from your 50 year olds in the economy, people whose kids are just about to reach college age or just in college. Uh, That really coincides with the low point of Generation X, which was 72, 73. So, you know, uh, sort of lacking what I call core spend there. And then we have a lot of millennials. Uh, The peak years for millennials were kind of 89 through 93. So they're all kind of in their early 30s. So depending on where business sits uh, related to that uh, and how money enters the economy also drives some of that stagflation and inflation, you know, sort of conversation. But Yeah, kind of of jumping over there. I mean, inflation historically is just defined as too much money chasing too few goods, right? Really doesn't say much about is the economy growing or shrinking. And some of what we saw with the pandemic, when a millennial has an incremental dollar, they're more likely to spend it on goods and services. Whereas when a boomer, uh, as they were approaching retirement, had an incremental dollar, they would save it, right? So one of the things we've seen is money velocity or money in the hands of younger people you know, picks up speed and and that obviously has more inflationary uh, sort of impacts. Uh, Other sort of inflationary impacts were, hey, people had to stock up, we had to inventory things, right? So people went out and bought toilet paper and cars with stimulus checks and things like that. And at the same time, we shut down a lot of production of say cars. And so some of those inflationary effects are, I think, cyclical and will kind of go away. Uh, They're sort of pandemic uh, related, Industry saw that as well. It's called the bullwhip effect, where you kind of shut down, you get the rebound, and then it sort of whips back as as things normalize. So, so there's some noise uh, in the numbers for sure. Um, then you know, stagflation is really the combination of inflation plus employment trends, right? Uh, so typically, stagflation is a high inflation environment where um, basically economic growth is no growth or negative growth. Uh, so you're really just not moving. Forward. In some ways, we're seeing uh, more stagflationary trends because unemployment's pretty low, but inflation's high. Um, during the 70s, there was a new term coined called the misery index, which is basically your unemployment rate plus your inflation rate. So today, unemployment's pretty low by historic standards at three and a half, but at eight and a half percent inflation, that gives you a 12 percent on misery index. So pr- pretty high. And obviously, that impacts consumer uh, decisions.
0: Yeah, I think um, uh, you mentioned the the '70s, and so you know, for for the audience in terms of full disclosure, I am um, you know Gen X. I'm I'll be 52 at the end of this year, and I do not fit. Alan's categorization of Gen X with kids who are uh, either in college or about to graduate from college, I have an eight-year-old. So I don't fit anywhere into that bell curve or that, that distribution, and I'm running against the grain in a lot of ways. Uh, that being said, I was born in 1970, and while I'd didn't know much of anything for the first years of my life, I do remember the Carter years, the misery index and, you know, regulation of the thermostat, like turn it up or turn it down and everything and all that, that kind of jazz. And that really was probably the last time we've seen um, inflation, uh, you know, being Discussed on on, on an <laughs> every hour basis by every uh, available news outlet, I feel like, and and none of us want to return to the the years of strong double digit mortgage rates and borrowing rates and things like that. So, you know, when we're when we're talking about. Um, like consumer behavior and then you know the the fed right federal funds rate and and everything else you hear powell uh last week and and um uh, wyoming and everything what's what's kind of the the intermediate term look to things do you think just generally speaking on on how we segue out of this
1: Yeah. And to make it more specific, I think for your listeners, I mean, back to the healthcare conversation at the core inflation, because it's eroding the value of your cash, uh, people will tend to spend cash very quickly on necessities, right? Because if you just sit around on your cash, it's losing value. Uh, And then they will tend to delay purchases of things that are more discretionary in nature, right? So, you know, as that sort of You know, hits home at say a dental practice. You know, your your core procedures are still going to get done, and people might actually spend money more quickly on on those types of things. But elective types of things, people would be more inclined to delay because they you know they're having to spend more money on food and gas and 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 items like that. Um, You know, some of the inflation is going to be with us for a while. Back to this demographic challenge, Uh, nobody can do anything about it. Uh, You lose a lot of people from the workforce. You don't have enough people coming behind. You can't replace of someone who's been in the workforce for 40 years or 35 years with someone who is just trained up, right? So you have to spend more money on training programs. Uh, I think a key thing for business owners is to think about um, how the inflation is impacting both your employees and your customers. Are you reviewing your pricing uh, regularly? Um, yeah, How are you pricing your services? Are you, um, you know, in our case, we've gone to more than once a year sort of uh, pay, looking at people's pay uh, a little bit more frequently, because obviously, you know, at 8.5% inflation, if that's not addressed, people might start looking around. Uh, so you want to make sure you're you know, aware of how the inflation may be impacting your workforce and taking steps to address it, taking a look at your pricing, take a look at your collections, um, you know, to make sure, because time really is money in, in that sort of, in a high inflation environment, time does matter.
0: Yeah, e- excellent point. And for for those uh, in the audience, you can probably read between the lines on Alan's last commentary there that he, much like all of us uh, in the audience, uh, Alan is an entrepreneur at heart. I mean, he and a uh, a couple of partners built FinTrust uh, Capital Advisors to a uh, a level of regional and national prominence, and and um, they. Recently merged with that larger regional bank, United Community Bank. So a uh, successful business builder, successful business operator, um and uh, to a degree, a successful exit, too. So uh, kudos to him, but you're able to to kind of see some of his insights that we all share in terms of the trials and tribulations about how to operate a business in today's overall environment. And we all know that it has myriad of challenges. So, um you know, are there other, um, thoughts or maybe comments um for our our entrepreneurs who in the audience uh, who are building group- uh group dental practices at least um and, and those who are looking to to kind of grow their business um you know it's one thing to operate it. You gave some good guidance on that, but um if you put your business owner hat back on for a second and and think about you know. Uh, you're still growing your business within UCB. I mean, our our audience is a little bit different because they're working with banks like UCB to borrow money and, and usually acquire other practices. Some of them are a de novo bill type of a strategy. Um, but any, any thoughts there on people who are looking to expand the footprint and really grow through uh, uh, unit expansion?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, de- demographics obviously matter. Um, not only are we seeing it at what I call a big level, we're also seeing it at, at sub levels. Uh, you know, zip codes <laughs> matter. Uh, I mean, you had over a million people move out of major metro areas to uh, other places, uh, so zip codes do matter uh, to to your business. Uh, obviously, one of our, you know, your any business runs on its people. Uh, you know, so we we always try to align, hey, is it good for our clients or in uh, a dentist's case, good for the patients? Uh, are the decisions we're making good for our staff? Are we building the right culture, keeping and retaining the talent that we need? And, and do the economics work? I mean, when you're running a group practice, you need the economics to work. And And I think if there's a shortcoming professional practices bump into at times is many of the participants fail to separate their labor economics of what do I get paid to do the work or work in the business versus what am I getting paid to work on the business as, as an owner and as a provider of capital and, and how do I separate those things, right? And, um, and some of that can even get into benefits design. I mean, the way a solo practitioner might design benefits might be quite different than the way a group practice does, you know, designs their benefit programs
0: yeah i I think you know that whole economies of scale argument that you're you're touching on there is a a really salient point that uh you know in the in the coming years the ada american dental association um has written about spoken about and presented about the 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 profession of dentistry is is kind of top heavy i mean they're they're going to be for the next two or three years uh, probably more of an exodus of people selling their practice than there are um, uh, dental school graduates coming out and people available to buy it. So it's going to be still a, a a market of, generally speaking, M&A activity where it's going to be right for people um, to expand. I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity to that effect. And so for for our core clients, the entrepreneurial dentists who are using bank funds to grow the pre-private equity group practices. I think the the coming years do um, uh, bode pretty well uh, based around zip codes, like you mentioned. Um, there are some segments of the uh, country and, and some states in particular that are seeing significant influx of, of population migration and some that are a little bit, you know, behind the eight ball, so to speak, with that. And, you know, I only halfway jokingly say that I feel like a lot of the people from the Northeast have already relocated to Charlotte, but it, it's not un- altogether um, uh, inaccurate either. When we think about, uh, um, you know, those potentially exiting their business, that again, the ADA tends to talk about it, from a a solo practitioner standpoint um that being said you know in 2021 you and i both saw the same thing in terms of global m a activity and good lord it was white hot in the the world of dentistry with volume of transactions um uh, multiples paid uh Aggressive uh, structures in terms of cash, uh, front-loaded cash, and a lot of things like that. It was really, you know, the perfect storm in a lot of ways. But for those, you know, who are looking to potentially exit their business, they, if they built a successful group practice, and and maybe they're they're looking to take some chips off the table with a financial partner, or exit it to a strategic, um, or or merge it even with a slightly larger entity. Um, what what should they be thinking about? And I mean, you just did that with your business, and it was a pretty frothy time. So, any wisdom or insight you want to share with our audience um, who are thinking about entering the process?
1: Yeah, yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, one is a uh, good piece of advice I got early on is you, you have to leave runway for your buyer, right? And so yeah, there are certainly tra- there are certainly transactions to that would generate more uh, cash. Um, but in our case, that would have also led to a gutting of our staff, right? There's a, there's always someone who's willing to buy your revenue base, uh, and typically, they're going to offer the higher multiple, uh, but it was important to us that we we had a lot of younger people in our business, so we wanted to provide continuity and a pathway and opportunity for them to continue to grow, so that kind of led us down the path of looking more for strategic partners uh, that were really giving us a platform. Platform opportunity to continue to grow the business. Um, uh, other, you know, owners may be at the point where, hey, you know, maximizing the the exit is key, but you you have to do that fully with the understanding of what that means for your staffing uh, potentially. Um, so, you know, there, there is a very big cultural difference between financial partners merging, you know, with strategics uh, merging with larger firms. Uh, that that I think are important. And I also say transaction structure is important. A lot of people get hung up on the number,, uh, but structure can you know in uh, times can help you adjust the numbers uh, a little bit in an accordion um, you know type of look. and then the other thing I, I would say kind of related to that um, is you know if you have junior partners or other people like that, you know, is it good for them as well. Uh, the best transactions do find that intersection of it truly is good for the patients, it's good for the people who have to execute on it, uh, and it's good for the shareholders uh, at the end of the day. And, and I think you, it's good to talk to the different types of partners. It, it It's not apparent when you start the process, but as you go through the process, it becomes pretty clear.
0: Yeah, that uh, great advice. And uh, you know, going back to your structure comment, I think the audience has heard uh, me and and DeWalker and a, and a few others who I've had on the podcast talk about structure beats price every day. Um, and you know I, I think that there are a lot of advantages to working with an advisor to help you think through what the structure is in terms of what it means to you um, in into the future, not just at the point of the liquidity event. I wonder also Alan, you know you you've been a leader at FinTrust, obviously being a co-founder. I mean you worn multiple hats and and you know as y'all went through the process of um, uh, planning the, potential exit i'm sure you thought long and hard on a personal level too you know like what what is this not just the the whatever cash you made put in the bank for you and your family type personal level but from a professional context you've had a a pretty remarkable career over a long period of time and and i don't think you would have entered into any type of a process from a a mindset of of Drinking margaritas on a beach for the rest of your life. I, I know you pretty well. You're not wired that way, you know. <laughs> so, so maybe it, without disclosing anything of any confidentiality or something that's too deeply personal here, I, I think our audience might learn from any insights you might have on, on the way you approached it personally and what you thought about your your uh, professional role. That you wanted to, to craft, or what you wanted it to be, with whoever the buyer ended up being, and in this case, it was UCB. But like, did you really put a lot of pen to paper, a lot of thought process behind, like what what you wanted for Alan Gillespie after all that happened?
1: Uh, we we did because uh, you know one of our core values as a firm has always been growth. We always uh, had shared with our uh, uh, staff that look, we we wanted want to be a place where people can grow personally where they can grow professionally and where they can grow their capital so so obviously the transaction brought in capital and in our particular case I had two older owners who you know have continued on with the business but realistically their working lives aren't as as long as mine they're in their mid 60s right they're on that front end of the baby boom born right there in 1957 58 uh, and in my case, I'm turning fifty this year, so I'm right there at the bottom of, of Gen X. So for me, having a place, hey, I have a you know a lot of runway left. I enjoy what I do. Uh, how can we do more of it? But the the issue we faced as a business was, okay, I have two older uh, partners who you know they've worked hard and deserve a liquidity uh, event at this stage in their career. But if we used all our cash flow to to do that, it really didn't leave us as much room as we need it to continue to facilitate growth and some of the changes uh, in the industry. So finding a strategic partner that had a lot of potential customers uh, that would generate internal cash flows, uh, that had bigger balance sheet uh, uh, as well, uh, gave really kind of a saw for both of us. Uh, For the older uh, partners who are a little bit closer to kind of a full-time exit, and then those of us who were sort of mid-career and looking to continue to grow.
0: Yeah, I, that's a really great point. And we've seen this in a, a handful of transactions going back, I don't know, four or five years now where you have, um, you know, multiple owners in a group dental practice. You see this a lot in the specialty world um, in particular, but, um, you know, all too often there, there are some that are senior, there's some that are mid-career. There's some that are junior or new into the the business and and the business is set up that way intentionally, especially from a provider context to to allow for transitions of ownership and retirements of founding partners and all that kind of good stuff. And you know when you when you approach a a transaction. Um, and we talk about structures and, you know, if it's 80 percent cash up front and 20 percent on an equity roll, and blah, 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 that doesn't mean that it has to be 80, 20 for every single partner. I mean, usually the buyer uh, is is uh, has a wide berth in terms of um, what they will allow uh, for um, the the business that's being acquired. So if you've got a couple of senior partners that are soon to be retiring, they may not want to take a lot in equity. They might want more cash because cash is for, at least in most instances, is more of a sure thing. Whereas those that are younger might say, hey, look, I got plenty of runway ahead of me in terms of prime earning years. I'm going to make enough income in the next 10 years you know, with doing my, performing my God-given craft here, but what I really want is the upside of an equity investment. So they might want more equity and less cash. And and you can kind of, I don't want to say fight over it amongst the ownership uh, group, but you can allocate dollars differently between cash and equity based on the individual partners themselves. And it's kind of cool to think that y'all did that as, as well, um, being a financial services company.
1: Yeah, um, it, it, very, very common for professional services practices. And and again, it's just a matter of getting everybody's interests on the table. And, and that was one of the things that one of our core values really helped with that is we had a core value of transparency. So it's not to say, hey, you know, it's not all this one for all uh, type of thing. It's being realistic about the business issues. Let's get them on the table so that they can be discussed and addressed. Yep. Yeah.
0: And, and uh, discussed and addressed proactively uh, before you enter the process <laughs> right. so, so that so that everybody knows, you know, there are no hidden agendas and, and there's nothing that's going to be a, a poison pill uh, in uh, 20 days before closing. Right.
1: <laughs> yeah. We, we work with uh, a lot of people and, and we nearly saw a client case uh, professional services practice go haywire because of a uh a divorce that was happening in the background that the other partners weren't aware of. And oh. obviously, you know, splitting of assets kind of came up at the finish line. Uh So it's not something we had seen before. And, you know, yeah. knock on wood, yeah. fortunately, not anything that came up in our business, but it I have seen it happen.
0: Yeah. I mean, that... uh um, there there are enough things that you would think that should be avoidable at <laughs> uh, at the deal table late but I'm never uh, surprised when when things like that come up. Like, good grief, man! You, you almost feel like sometimes you need to go through confessional before you start the process. <laughs> but, um, you know what? Whatever uh, uh, produces the smoothest, uh, cleanest, and and most accurate outcome, I guess, is preferable. So, um. So let's kind of turn back and put your uh, um, uh, chief investment officer hat on um, you, the the economist uh, in you, and let's let's talk about the overall outlook for the coming years, just generally speaking, broad brush type stuff here. Um, what's uh, what's the thought process from Alan Gillespie to our audience on that?
1: Yeah, I mean broad brush is the millennials are now the largest living generation uh and that will be true for the rest of our investing lives. Uh so their consumer preferences are really going to matter. Uh the good news is they're relatively young. Uh they're you know early in their careers and, and so I think that's going to give the underlying economy a lot more resilience uh, at the end of the day. Uh obviously there's some policy issues uh around energy uh and the like and, and but a lot of this is going to take place at what i call a consumer choice level and and people you know kind of laugh but an example i I give them is you you can think through a lot of i call them newer companies versus older companies uh i used to laugh about the whole beyond meat was really just a repackaging of hormel and spam right for the old world (laughs) war ii generation Uh, and you can kind of go through product by product um you know inflation we saw the average size of first-time home shrink last year, right? So how do you deal with inflation? You cut 50 square feet off of a house, right? Things like that. So, you know, you don't need ATMs and bank branches. You need cell phones and apps, right? So a lot of this is, you know, for lack of a term, the winners are going to be those who understand those consumer preferences of those millennials or in dentistry, you know, has an outlook for how to serve this mass of boomers. Uh, Obviously, you you know, as your teeth age you know a lot more work on that but you don't have as long to work with that client but the the amount of work they're going to need is going to go up temporarily right so so how do you build your business or what's the focus of your business um you know uh and then the other thing is people age they might be moving off of private insurance to government programs you know things like that as well so what's the nature of your clientele so the winners are really going to understand their their clientele and they're going to design their products and services in a way that adds value. Uh, it's the same same thing that always makes business a, a winner at the end of the day, when you provide value to the customer, uh, customers will accept your products and services and, and you'll do extremely well.
0: Yeah, I, I think um, the healthcare services, uh side of, of the healthcare profession is, has really um, been forced to adopt a lot of that kind of mindset um, with a, with a vengeance as of late. And, and I think when you, you're talking about the millennials specifically, and, and again, the ADA has done some work on this, where you talk about the, the consumerism um, or consumer mindset in terms of buyer behavior. And we always have talked about Consumerism and buyer behavior from a widget standpoint, but that uh, approach um, to buyer behavior is 100% applicable to healthcare services. And if it's you know e- ease of access, like um, extended day hour, you know hours before eight a.m. or hours after five p.m., or if it's you know being open uh, five and a half six days a week to include a a Saturday or a Sunday or something like that, or it's the ability to to book online and, and fill out all the forms electronically so you're not wasting time in the waiting room or pay your bill online, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it, it's, it's a totally different uh, game these days in terms of the way that people approach making healthcare decisions and engaging with their healthcare provider uh, than even it was a decade ago. Uh, and that's not just technology driven. That's that's really a lot of consumer mindset uh, in terms of buyer behavior. So interesting uh, sort of change in the telehealth piece only probably accelerated that too during the the pandemic. So
1: yeah, and, and that's one of the things I think that's going to be interesting with this millennials. Uh, they they've been willing to sort of congregate in large urban areas downtown. So I've seen some dental practices, you know, that have urban settings that are you know they really got large very quickly, right? But now all of a sudden people are working from home, they're working remote. Maybe they're even you know getting to the ages where they're actually starting families and some of those traditional behaviors that people didn't think the millennials would engage in, hey, they're now engaging in it. So, you know, back to group dental, maybe you need both a downtown and one closer to where they might be living or working, right? Because of because of that shift, right? Yeah. So it, it gets straight to your location strategies as well.
0: Yeah, really, really interesting. That's a great point. I hadn't, uh, I hadn't considered that. Um, so, you know, um, let, let's talk, you know, or kind of wrap things up maybe with, with another, uh, overarching question, I I would say. And, And, you know, we talk about the challenges of being an entrepreneur of of building and operating a business um you know and it doesn't it doesn't matter if it's uh, a consulting and service oriented business like Polaris or a financial services business like um FinTrust or a bank or a group dental practice or any other but um it, it, the businesses that are going to be most secure are going to be those that that understand their customer base they understand their value proposition they understand what they're building and they're they're committed to competing and and winning uh in the marketplace in in the coming years you know not uh, not just playing defense or or stagnating if you kind of give us a big picture overview or some thoughts from from your lens on uh, how business owners, be it generally speaking or group healthcare practice owners, uh, how ca- they can better prepare themselves to compete and win in the marketplace in the coming years. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, obviously, you're going to have to be efficient, right, with, with cost uh, and inflation uh, sort of moving. So, you know, as we mentioned um, compensation practices, right? Maybe you go to more frequent reviews, your pricing strategies, right? So you're just really going to have to have a, a good command of the details uh, and efficiency. And, and in part, the technology enables that uh, as well. It, it puts a lot more at your fingertips, but you're going to have to know how to use it and leverage it and, and get the reports uh, you know, at, out of your systems. I mean, we you know, rolled out for lack of terms and intelligent systems that give us just a lot more color on our customer now, right? <laughs> now it's up to us to kind of put it to work I and mean, we we have those greater insights. And, and so I think it's really to have command of that to really be cost conscious, right? Um, you know, you, you've gotta be more efficient because uh, I like to give the uh, example, of obviously there's a large online retailer that's grown very fast, but all of a sudden cash is at a premium, so they're having to slow their growth. And be more methodical because of the you know costs that are driving everything below the top line, right? So a lot of people kind of just focus on that top line. I think more and more focusing on the things below the top line are going to be critical to success going forward.
0: Yeah, I, I would uh, I would echo those comments a hundred percent. We used to at Patterson um, we used to have a, a saying, especially around the time of of budgeting, which is that sales cover sins right and i mean you you know when you have p l responsibility or you're operating uh your own business and trying to grow it and and you're just chasing the revenue dollar um as long as you feel like as long as you're growing revenue things are okay and nothing could be further from the truth and those who who can't manage a cost structure and aren't connected to their um uh their fixed and variable cost basis are gonna be the ones that build businesses that if the tide ever recedes and the revenue doesn't materialize, you're gonna uh, you're gonna be in a world of hurt, you know. And and Patterson drilled into us at a really early stage, a concept called operating leverage that I, I share with people all the time, and that's simply the the fact that you know the, your change in profit uh, grows at a faster rate than your change in sales. And if you can achieve that, you're you're going to build a world beater business. And if you can't, you're ultimately going to run out of rope at some point. It's just a matter of when. So. Um, Alan, this is uh, this has been a tour de force. I really can't thank you enough for your time. You're a, an extremely busy guy. Um, and to get an hour of your time for today's podcast is uh, incredibly generous. And, and we appreciate it. I know our audience is a lot better for it. And again, every time I talk to you, I'll learn something new as well. I, I hope this won't be the last time you're on our, our podcast. We'd love to get you back at some point soon. But I can't thank you enough for your time today, my friend
1: Uh, it very much enjoyed it and look forward to being back on the group practice accelerator
0: you bet my friend you bet always appreciate the time and uh and the guidance so well everyone i hope you got a lot out of that alan shared a tremendous amount um and and a lot of it was purely educational and there are things that we can all learn about building better businesses and being uh more connected to both our customer base and the numbers if you got questions about anything that. Alan shared today. Uh, feel free to drop me an email directly at Perrin at PolarisHealthcarePartners.com. We will link to Alan's contact information and his bio in the uh, show notes. Stick around. We'll be right back with some additional thoughts and to wrap up the show. Thanks once again to Alan Gillespie, uh, Chief Investment Officer of FinTrust Capital Advisors, for joining me on the show today. He's a wealth of information, and candidly, um, he's a, a resource to me personally. I pick his brain uh, with probably alarming regularity uh, on things that I don't understand that he's well versed on um, and has you know, for lack of a better term, a lot of historical grounding in. Alan is a student of history and it really comes through in the way that he talks about things. And I, I felt like, um, shame on me for not having him on the podcast prior to now, but given everything that's going on, I felt like that y'all would uh, hopefully benefit from some of his insights and, and just the way he kind of talks through things and the clarity that he provides. So we will have him back on the show at uh, at some point in the future for sure. Before I wrap things up today, uh, I want to take a second and talk about our Denver conferences coming up. There are still seats available, but they are uh, filling up quickly. Um, we are going to cap this at 150 people. So if you're on the fence about attending, uh, I would encourage you to, to get on your horse and uh, get on the landing page and get registered uh, quickly. This is going to be a whale of a conference. Some of the um, presenters and the, the content that they're sharing is starting to, to trickle in. I'm getting to see some of these presentations, and it's it's really going to be tremendous. One of the companies that will be speaking uh, as well as sponsoring this year is SMC National. That's Gary Bird. SMC is a, a dental-specific marketing agency out of L.A., We have known Gary and his team for a number of years, um, and and they have been um, very instrumental in a lot of success with a lot of our clients. Gary is one of the few marketing people who's an analytic at heart. And I think that's probably why we relate so well to them. A lot of marketing people want to talk about websites and graphical design and color palettes. And all that stuff is super important. But for Gary and his team, a, a lot of it is data-driven. Uh, and that's uh, you know marketing metrics for success. That's, I think, going to be the name of his presentation. But it's all about things like cost per lead, cost to acquire a patient, first-year patient values, conversion ratios. Really building some sense of scalability uh, for your group practice in terms of the marketing metrics and the way you do what you do. Um, and that's critically important if you're a de novo type of an approach where you need to attract patient number one. Uh, but it's equally important for those that are uh, growing through acquisition because when you buy a practice, you got to make sure that you generate revenue. And typically, one of the easiest or low-hanging fruits of an acquisition is the ability to drive more new patient revenue. Uh, and Gary and his team are, are professionals at that. And like I say, we, we really love working with them. They're great at lead generation. They understand data and reporting. They do a lot of work uh, with groups and DSOs. Uh, so suffice to say that the group practice concept and DSO specifically are, are not an offshoot of their business. It is their business, and, and they are great at it. We really appreciate um, you know, Gary being a sponsor of the conference, and we certainly appreciate what he's going to share uh, with the audience. Um, yet another um, uh, Class A presenter. Uh, I've seen him present multiple uh, times before, and the the information is um, spot on with the way we approach it from a granularity standpoint and an actionable intelligence standpoint. So. If you're coming and and wanting to learn more about um, a a different way to look at some of your marketing spend uh, in terms of dollars approach, where you're focusing that, how to how to separate it um, from what's scalable versus what's not scalable and what to go back home and think about. uh, Gary's going to share all of that in about 60 to 90 minutes. And of course, he and his team are going to be there with us for for all two days. So it's going to be wonderful. I hope that you will. Uh, Join us in Denver. Um, Mark Costas uh, and his group at the Dental Success Institute are doing a tremendous job of helping us promote it. It's going to be a really, really fun conference and frankly, something that um, I'm looking forward to because I've been able to. uh, This has given me a chance to prepare a lot of new content um, that we didn't have before. So um, please do make time October 5th through 7th in Denver. Hope you'll join us. We'll link to all of it in the show notes today. Certainly appreciate you being a a listener and a subscriber. We'll see you on the next episode.